Welcome to Beyond Medicine. My name is Rami Webby, and I'm your host. In this podcast, we bring you inspiring leaders from across the medical landscape and explore the cutting edge of science and medicine. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today's episode is with Kyle Clausen. He's the CEO at Resolve, a physician-founded contract review agency. In this episode, we take a deep dive into some of the factors that lead to the disempowerment of physicians, and we talk about how physicians can leverage their power for better terms and better benefits. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Beyond Medicine. Today, I'm with the CEO of Resolve, Kyle Clausen, and we're going to be talking about a really important topic today pertaining to doctors and specifically the disempowerment of physicians. Recently, I came across a post on LinkedIn, and and me and Kyle had a little bit of a discussion about this. And Kyle, before I introduce you, I'm going to really quickly read this excerpt from LinkedIn. And I hope that people listening can kind of sort of resonate with this. Here's the post, and this is from Daniel Paul, MD. Physicians are used to getting bullied by hospital systems and insurance companies every day. We're prepared for this existence by residency, where making waves could easily ruin your career. Heaven forbid your own residency program turns against you for going against the grain. You'll face extreme harassment with the threat of getting fired. If you get fired from a residency, there's not a great chance that you can find another one in the same field. So in essence, it can be a career-ruining move. Once we're attending, we sign on competes, which cause many physicians to move if they leave their abusive job. Add some golden handcuffs in there, and what you get is an unhappy, very stuck physician. The irony is that none of these hospital systems can function without us. Insurance companies would easily lose nearly all of their value if physicians stopped contracting with them. We make the whole system run. Without us, there is no system. They keep us separated and weak. It's not easy for us to collectively bargain without violating antitrust. Grassroots deflection is all we have. End quote. And when I read this, I was like, wow, that articulated all my thoughts about medical training, about residency training, and about how we, as physicians, we end up getting stuck and have really no leverage in the healthcare system to create our own lifestyles, to create our own job, job workflows. Um, And I think there's not a lot of resources out there for us to know how to negotiate, to know what kind of leverage we have. And we're not trained in that process at all. So that's my little that's my little spiel. Now, Kyle, I'll let you introduce yourself. <laughs> hey, um, yeah, I'm Kyle, and that excerpt what you just read is is really why Resolve exists. So this is not a new problem, but I think it's getting a lot of attention right now. And I couldn't be happier to to sit here today and talk with you on this because I think it's really really important for the next five to ten years of medicine. Absolutely. Now, you guys are a physician founded company, correct? And this correct. Was- yeah, we were founded. I guess over 10 years ago now by a physician who was on faculty and was talking to residents you know, and fellows about the business of medicine and just realizing that this is a probably a bigger problem than just you know, the folks he was dealing with. And so that's, that's where Resolve got its foundation. Awesome. And what was it specifically for you? Like, What have you seen over the years working at Resolve that physicians are really struggling with? You know, I think the, the biggest thing from that post and, and from what we see is just the lack of information, lack of clarity around this. So if you go back, you know, 20 years ago, you know, back in 2002, most physicians were still in a private practice, right? They were were their own boss. And so 
when you were in a contract or when you were employed prior to becoming a partner, you were dealing with a colleague. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for why those numbers have changed, but, but the newest numbers, only about 30% remain in private practice. I mean, all, most physicians are, are now either employed by a health system or, you know, some larger private equity company that's out there. It's, it's no longer this collegial relationship. And that I think causes just a lot of problems for an individual physician. There are no unions. There's no collective bargaining, right? Like, it, like athletes have where they sign the CBAs. There's, there's not that for physicians. And so everybody's on their own to, to stand up for what is important to them. That's what we get a front row seat to uh, day in and day out because that's what we do. I'm surprised that it's even that high of a number of doctors in private practice, like 30%. That even see, I really don't even see it being that high. Is it, do you think it's mostly concentrated in like high earning specialties that are still in private practice? I do. There's, there's certain specialties that have remained more independent, right, than others. Uh, you don't see it a lot in primary care. You're seeing it, you know, maybe with orthopedics or ophthalmology or, you know, some of these other ones that are kind of on their own. But I think that number is going down. I mean, it's, if it's 30% as of the most recent study, it's probably 27% today, right? Because it's just, it continues to push lower and lower, you know, every year. Right, right. I think as doctors, I think we, you know, we obviously don't have any training in law. And, you know, right when we finish residency, we're given contracts and, you know, we are just eager to make some money and start paying off our student loans and start our families. And, you know, add in all the sunk costs of what we've been through. We're just ready to get going and just sign on the dotted line. And uh, I think there's a little bit of danger in that because in the fine print, there's often things that can really be harmful to us in the long term. And I think that's what you guys do such an excellent job with in terms of educating doctors, telling them how to navigate the contract process, and even aiding in the negotiation of those contracts. So what is it in the fine print that people are often missing that lead to the consequences down the road? Yeah. So the, the one thing from the, that initial post that you read that I think is really important is that when you've decided to become employed, right? Meaning you're not going to go open your own practice. You're not joining a private group. There's a lot of reasons for that. And, and I'm not faulting anyone individually because, you know, medical school debt's a real thing and you've got to pay that off. And if health systems are offering you more than a private group is, there's, you know, I get it. But when you give up that autonomy, you're then going to be subject to all the rules of their contract. And most physicians feel burnout, not for the numbers that they feel, you know, trapped because of scheduling, you know, changes or kind of the duties and responsibilities component of the contract that changes on them where they didn't think they were going to have to satellite to a different location. And now they're being forced to do that, or they're taking more call than they were supposed to. They don't have enough staff, right. Or the proper equipment, you know, all of those things factor into satisfaction. And then the big thing from that post is that when those things happen, if you walked yourself into a non-compete and you don't have any leverage to just walk away and go do something else, it's, it's disempowering, right? I mean, you, you no longer have the authority to do what you want to do. And so I think those are the big ones. Obviously, being paid fairly is important, but those are the things that really affect lifestyle and affect your career. Yeah. Yeah. Because you feel stuck, essentially. Like If you can't get out of a job that's not satisfactory to what you want, then I feel like that does contribute a lot to the burnout that doctors feel. That's burnout. It's resentment, probably, right? That yeah, you're, yeah. you know, you're you're wanting to provide good patient care, and instead you're worried about the hospital administration is telling you that you have to do. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's I think it's frustrating for a lot of people. Yeah. Do you think that physicians are particularly vulnerable just because of like our training, our kind of like brainwashing through the process? Is there uh, some component of that that just makes physicians particularly vulnerable? 
I think because of the reasons most go into medicine is not for the business side of it. There are some that do, but most don't. Uh, and I think all of the training is around the sciences, around patient care, right? There's not a lot of accounting that happens. There's not a lot of business of medicine or contract discussion that happens. And the other unique thing about physicians is that your compensation jumps so dramatically from when you leave training to when you're, you know, out in practice and, are, are, and attending that, you know, I think there's some self-doubt or some just, you know, I'm not worth that much, you know, because I was just doing the same work last year as a trainee making 50,000. And now you're going to pay me five times that, right. To do the same work where they feel like they should just be happy that they're getting that amount and, and they move forward on it. The problem is, is that they don't know that, you know, maybe it should be six or seven times that amount is actually what fair market value is. And right. so, sometimes we get into this conversation of, you know, it's more of how the money gets split up. It's not that the money isn't being driven. You know, healthcare is like 17% of GDP. The numbers are very, very big. And so it's either the, the system that's going to keep it or you that's going to keep it. And that's a problem that you individually are not going to solve, whether you agree with that or not, right? The numbers are what they are. And so fairness to me looks like being paid what you're worth, not just the fact that you're being paid more than you were a year ago or two years ago. Right. And it, part of me that feels that as a collective, like almost collectively that we sort of put ourselves in a corner that's hard to get out of because now, now it's like we've given up so much leverage already. We've kind of already given up our negotiating power. And it's either like a lot of times it's like, hey, take it or leave it, or we're going to find a replacement, whether or not they can actually find a replacement or not. And I feel like at this point, we're just in such a bad position that I almost feel like we're just screwed. Like there's no way out of this. <laughs> it's going to take more awareness, which I hope, you know, part of this conversation is to do that, right? Is to, to help everybody know that there are ways that you can protect yourself and it's going to take some preventative medicine, right? So to speak, that you, you have to know these things before you sign a contract and you have to try to push that non-compete down, right? Because exactly what you're saying is that if, if you don't have leverage, you're stuck, right? If you can't go to the competing health system or to the competing private practice, that's really where they've got you, right? Mm -hmm. And so you need to make sure on the way in that you're creating as many carve-outs to those non-competes and repayments of signing bonuses and relocation allowances and all the other golden handcuff things that they utilize. The more holes you can poke in those things, the better off you're going to be. And it's going to take everybody doing it. It can't just be one here and there. Supply yeah. and demand, certainly, right? From an economic standpoint, there's a shortage of physicians. So you guys should have more leverage than anybody in the country. Right, exactly. And yet you don't. That's mind-boggling to me. That if we as a collective all came together and had legal resources all come together with us and formulated our like strategy, I don't know what, just came up with a plan of like, how can we all band together? These are the rules we're all going to play by together so we don't all get screwed over collectively. And I mean, in essence, it's sort of like unionizing, but for whatever reason, we've never gotten to that point, whereas other professions seem to have. Yeah. And I, I don't know that unionization is needed. I wouldn't quite go that far. I think what needs to happen, though, is that you already have the power, right, that you need. And so the only thing that's lacking is, is the information and the expertise to go out and actually effectuate that change. You'll hear this from, and we hear this from clients all the time, that this is the standard contract, right? We employ thousands of positions. We never make changes to the agreement, except they are, and they do a lot. And so when we sit on this side of it, we know that they have power, that every individual has the power if they actually push on it. 
It's just that nobody's doing that yet, or not in mass anyway. I mean, a few people are, uh, but it's very hit and miss. So if, if everybody would do that, I, I agree with you. I think the economics of it are that they need you, that you guys drive everything in healthcare. And so you sure, certainly should be getting the things that you want. Are health systems or insurance companies trying to prevent this in any way? Like, are they making more obstacles so that physicians don't come together in that way and use that leverage power? I don't know. I mean, the non-compete certainly uh, is one of the tools that they utilize. And so that's, that's intentional. They are buying out, right? The options that you could bounce to as well. So if you're a cardiologist, maybe, and there's two or three private groups in town and they go out and acquire two of them, you know, now they've, they've removed that competition. You know, most health systems are fairly monopolistic. If you look at any market, there's two or three. They're not really competing with 10 or 12 entities anymore. It's only a couple. So I, I think that the strategy has been there for the last 20 years. I think that it's working, right? That 70% is now down to 30%. And I think the problem is going to continue to, to get worse until physicians decide they want to fix it. An interesting point. And that's the acquisition of these private practices. And I guess I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how that plays into the power differential between the health systems and, and doctors. Because I was just working at a private practice that's just gotten acquired by a private equity company. And now instead of the founder of the practice being in control of everything, she's taking a salary and private equities, you know, they have a management group that's taking over and running everything. So essentially she's lost control of her practice, but I don't know what that means. I, I'm just watching it happen right in front of me right now. You have to think about who the owners are right? in most of these private practices. They're usually physicians that are in their upper fifties or sixties, and they are, they are not in the same boat as a new physician coming out of training. And so they're willing to give up that control, right? But it's they're receiving compensation for that and being bought out for that. And so that may be an exit strategy for them, you know, into retirement over the next three or four years. And I'm not faulting any of them for doing that. I mean, I think they, right. they built the business, they can sell it, but it, it does affect if you're a new trainee coming out and you have the anticipation that I want to not go into the health system, right? I want to fight this fight and I want to go into private practice. And before you become a partner, before you get a vote in what happens, they get sold out to private equity or to that health system. You've taken on all the risk and now you don't get that reward either. And so what happens is, is that if a health system is going to pay you an extra $100,000, let's say in your first three years, and that carrot is disappearing from private practice. I mean, it's, I don't fault either side for what's happening because if I was a young trainee with a lot of debt, I wouldn't want to leave or risk that amount on the table either. It just exacerbates itself over and over until, you know, now we're down to 30% and maybe fewer in the future. Yeah. Interesting. Have you seen any like specific situations where you've worked with either a resident or an attending um, on a contract that ended up saving them from a huge catastrophe or maybe someone who didn't get their contract review end up getting put into a really bad position? Yeah. Well, if you want to talk about acquisitions, I'll start with an example early on in Resolve's, I guess, life cycle, where we, we did not work with this physician, but she came to us after the fact. She left training and joined a practice, a private practice. And it was literally the first week. So it was like the Friday of her first week where the, the senior partner came in and said, hey, you know, good news. We just sold out to private equity. And she went, Oh, I don't think that this is where I want to be anymore. You know, I thought I was getting into a, a private practice setting. And they said, well, that's fine. You can terminate, right? Because you have the right to terminate the contract. But 
your non-competes going to apply. And so, you know, that you've got this 20 mile radius that you've got to contend with, which effectively forced her to move out of the city after she'd been there for a week and she had just left training. And so whether or not those things are enforceable and whether or not a judge would actually, you know, validate the non-compete in that scenario, it is an expensive, you know, lesson to learn. And most new physicians that are coming out of training don't want to do that. And so that's, that's kind of a worst case scenario and really dramatic facts around a bad setup, but that's what can happen Yeah, is the rug can be pulled out from underneath you on day five if they decide to do that. Why do you think physicians sign contracts with non-competes in them? Do you feel like they are being stonewalled or cornered into a position and they just feel like they have no other options? Or do you just think like it's just being naive? Uh, I think there's data out there that says only about 35% of physicians have their contract reviewed by an attorney or even looked at. So I think the vast majority are just taking a contract and signing it and not even understanding what's in it. The other you know, 35% that if they have it reviewed and are aware of that risk, if they don't have options, you know, what's your leverage? So if, if you only have one place to work in Kansas City, if that's where you want to be, you know, and you say, hey, I don't like the non-compete, and they say, too bad. If you're not willing to walk away from it at that point, you really don't have much to do other than sign it. So people are often very naive might be the right word, but they think things are going to work out, right? This is my practice. I'm going to be here forever. The non-compete only applies if I leave. I'm never going to leave. The problem with that is that half or roughly half leave their first job within two years. And so you need to plan on the non-compete absolutely applying. and You need to be very comfortable with what that's going to do. And from what you've seen, are hospitals, employers typically okay with saying, hey, you know, I want this non-compete completely taken out of my contract. Are they usually open to that? And because most of them are just dying to hire doctors at this point. So I imagine if you can just negotiate, say, hey, I, I don't want this in my contract at all. Are most open to that from your experience? Some are, or some are open to limiting it, right? So they'll, they'll carve out either a different mileage or a different time period or, or when it applies where it's, you know, softens it and gives you a few outs, you know, maybe you can go to work at the VA, you know, type of thing. If you don't want to leave town, there's different ways to, you know, effectuate that change. But the other half of that, and the reason we allow non-competes just in general for all business is that if a, an employer makes a substantial investment in you, right, they don't want you to turn around and go to their competitor the very next day. So there's legitimate reasons to have non-competes in business. But you can argue that healthcare is different. Healthcare is not supposed to be a business. This isn't Amazon or yeah. Walmart or any of these other large employers. This is supposed to be delivering patient care and there's a public need behind it. And so if you force the only, pick your specialty, the only cardiologist you know, in the area to leave town, is that really something we as a society think is okay? Or should we just let them go practice somewhere else because they're delivering good patient care? Yeah, interesting point. So Kyle, we talked a little bit about this disempowerment process that happens through medical training. And I've sort of experienced some of this through my training where essentially even starting out in your first year, all the way through your fourth year of medical school, you're sort of taught what you're allowed to say, what you're allowed not to say, the way you're supposed to think. And there's this fear-based mentality placed in you at all the way through your initial training process, and then especially through residency. And there's this accumulation of costs that happens throughout that entire process where the further you get along in your training, the more you have to lose. So if I'm a first-year medical student, I don't have a lot to lose. My debt, I haven't accumulated so much medical debt yet. 
I'm still learning. I'm still figuring out if I like this. If I were to leave medical school my first year, I don't have that much. I haven't lost all that much. I haven't lost seven years. I only maybe accumulated $30,000 of debt and I can still find other options. You stack that up year after year, second year, $100,000, third year, $200,000, fourth year, $300,000. Then you've accumulated all of this debt. So now you're a fourth year, you're pretty much stuck. You get into first year of residency, your degree is useless unless you finish your first year of residency and you can get a license. For other states, it's your second year of residency. And then if you don't, and then your third year is like you get board certified. So every year, you know, should you get in trouble? Should anything happen? Should you disagree with maybe your program director or anything like that? You ultimately have way too much to lose. And you just have to do whatever you're told, no matter how absurd it is. You have to work whatever hours they request of you. You are just a slave and and it's indentured servitude is what it is. And you have to do whatever you're told. And after doing that for so many years, you become accustomed to just laying over and doing whatever you're supposed to do, because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be a good, obedient doctor. And I fear, my fear, and this is what I feel like is happening, is that you go through this process of training, you come out on the other end of this thing that just doesn't know how to fend for itself. And, <laughs> and it leads, I feel like, like deep down, like deep down on a cultural ingrained human mentality level, we've just come out on the other side uh, groomed to be in a vulnerable position. I don't think this was an intentional thing. I think it's for many reasons come out to be this way. But regardless, it's putting all of us in a bad position. Yeah, you, you nailed it. I mean, we see clients all the time that we can walk through and I can tell you, right, that you're being underpaid by whatever, a huge number. And they'll, they'll come back and say, yeah, well, but, right? And they'll start to justify why it's okay to pay me less, right? Because you know, he's a nice guy and he's built his practice up or she, you know, she has three other candidates that want the job. And I really have to be here because mom lives in town and all they'll find any reason to say, it's okay to pay me whatever, a hundred thousand dollars less than I'm supposed to be making. And I just, I sit there and I shake my head. I'm like, well, anybody else, like if you talk to a software developer and you told them they were underpaid by that much, they'd, they'd walk, right. And they'd go do something different. I think that's what it all boils down to to me though, is that if you have to be in geography really plays a big part of this, right? Everybody wants to live in a certain spot. And so if they haven't done their homework early on and they haven't played the game and got the leverage, right? And they have three offers in New York, if that's where you want to be, you don't feel good about pushing because everybody's scared that the offers are going to get pulled, even though supply and demand says it's probably not. I mean, there's not 10 of you for this job. There's probably less than one of you, right? But if you don't have that, it's easy, it's easy for me to say that, but it's less easy for you to agree with it if you don't have those other options to move to. So I... I completely agree. I think the system sets up that self-doubt and sets up that fear and kind of that, you know, that beaten puppy, right, type of mentality. But it's out there. I mean, the information's there. There's some people that do play the game well and that go in and get every single thing that they want in their contract, but it starts early on. It starts in your second to last year of training. You can't start in December when you graduate in July and think that you're gonna have all this figured out. Yeah. Yeah. And then not only does it harm you, like if you're gonna go and take a contract for $100,000 less than the fair market value, 
Like you're not only hurting yourself, you're hurting everybody else in the pool that is also looking for jobs because you're setting the market rate. You're essentially saying, this is okay for what, this is what I'm worth. And I think if enough, when enough people do that, it really devalues us as a profession entirely. And so it's not only affecting you, you taking that bad offer is affecting everyone. (laughs) It's such a good point. And I'm glad you brought that up. So what is the goal of private equity? Uh, Make money. Yeah, they're for profit, right? And so how are they going to make money? If they buy a practice, their goal is to say, okay, let's maybe pay every physician and 5% less, right? And if everybody gets squeezed by 5%, I mean, what happens to the next MGMA survey that comes out? is that the 100th percentile is now what used to be the 95th percentile. And they do it again the next year and the next year and over 20 years, right? It's not a problem today. It might not be a problem for you individually, but over 20 years, it's going to look really, really bad when we look back at the data. And so the more and more people that go into an employed model, more and more authority they're giving to those people to push that comp down. And if you don't negotiate it, you're right. It definitely hurts you. It's going to hurt when you can retire and how quickly you can pay those student loans off and what your kids are going to do for their college and things like that, but it, it affects everybody else and all your colleagues as well. So uh, I think that's a, a great point to make. Yeah. Yeah. I, I honestly believe like if we all came together, if everybody just had a lawyer and collectively had a lawyer group looking out for our best interests and educating, like really educating people on what is going on. So like what the fair market value is for every geographic area, what you taking like what it means if you take for less than fair market value, if you take an offer for less than fair market value, how it affects you, how it affects everybody else and educate all of us on what private equity is doing, well, how hospital systems are using leverage against all of us. Like these are the things I wish were available so that once we're, once we're, once this is transparent, once people really see what's happening behind the curtain, then we can pull together and say like, Hey, you know, this is wrong. We ought to all come together and set our fair market value rate and set our terms because ultimately like the physician shortage is just getting worse. It's not getting any better. Our leverage is only increasing. And I think to really keep a physician in practice nowadays is going to take a lot more than what's already been than what's being offered. Like we can't work 80 hours a week. We can't do call the way call schedules are being scheduled right now. We need family time and we need security and we need to be able to leave our job if it's not making us happier. And that is the sort of thing that I wish would happen to our community because honestly, I'm so sick of seeing doctors just run down and burned out and like just completely, you should see like in our Facebook groups, in the side gigs group, like Almost on a weekly basis, someone is just outright saying, I'm so done. I'm ready to leave my clinical practice. I want to go and become like a, like literally people have said, I want to go and become a PA or an NP. And this is not to bash anybody, any mid-level provider, but literally doctors are willing to downgrade their degree. And because the terms for mid-level providers are actually better than the terms that doctors get. It's crazy. Yeah, right now there's, I mean, there there are a lot of stories out there, and I'm sure you've seen them too, where uh, the, the APPs and even nursing, right, are receiving you know bonuses and compensation that are equivalent to right the the physician counterparts that are in the same practices, and so that's a again it's a supply and demand issue, but it's also reflective of physicians not 
pushing as hard as they should, right? Because mm -hmm. physicians are the top of the care, right? System. They have to make all, all the decisions. And so I, I'm with you. I think that there is, this generation is different than the generation 20 to 30 years ago. And part of the difference is that they no longer get the benefits of private practice, right? They've given up some of that maybe high-end compensation or some of the other, you know, ancillary reimbursements that used to be there. And that's okay. And in exchange for that, what they're wanting is better schedules and, you know, protection when things like a pandemic roll through. Unfortunately, what happened with the pandemic is the exact opposite of that, where they got furloughed and got cut and all these things that happened where, you know, you thought you gave up <laughs> the high end for the low end protections. Well, when the low end came, that that wasn't there either. And so I just, I think it's a really interesting spot to be in. And I think that's, that's what we're working on. And what we, you know, try to do every day is to create this data, you know, for physicians to try to create that transparency to give you guys the power back. Because when you do have data, right, I mean, you all make good decisions, very highly educated. It's what you do every day, right? I mean, you look at a patient chart, you're collecting information and data. Uh, if you can do that in the business side of your life too, I think it'll work itself out. Absolutely. What do you think the future looks like for doctors right now? I, I think it's going to go one of two ways. I mean, I think either private practice is going to become a thing that's almost a, a dinosaur, right? And that they're just gone. Or what I hope happens and what I, I think actually might happen because of things like that, that LinkedIn post that you shared. I think there's a a change coming or a movement coming where people are going to get together and say, okay, we, we tried this for the last 20 years and it's, it's not working. We thought it was going to be better. We thought we were going to drive costs down, you know, for patients. And, and we thought that this consolidation was the way to go. And it really, I don't think anybody agrees has worked that well. And I think there's going to be a change that happens. And I do think physicians are going to get sick of it enough to, to push back. Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to have to reach a breaking point in my head, for whatever reason, I just feel like we need some sort of catastrophe. As horrible as this sounds to say this, I feel like we do need some kind of catastrophe to happen for there to be any sort of change. Like the system actually needs to just break down and burn. <laughs> and maybe as, maybe if that were to happen and I, you know, it's unfortunate because like, you know, people are going to suffer. Patients aren't going to get care. Things aren't, you know, people are going to be out of jobs. But for whatever reason, I feel like we need like a resurrection in our healthcare system. And unless all doctors step away, not step away, but maybe come together and collectively say, these are what we want. This is what we need for a healthy life, a healthy practice, um, so that we can also be healthy while we're trying to make our patients healthy. And I think if that happens, then maybe we have a chance. But I think a reckoning is coming. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it'd be it'd be curious to know how many physicians right now would encourage right a younger sibling or or their child to go into medicine. I, I don't think I, a lot would. Yeah, my younger brother is applying to medical school right now, and he's really smart. And I told him like I've discouraged him multiple times, but not out of like I just wanted him to know what he's getting himself into. And I was like, look, you can do whatever you want. You're you you're really smart. You got great grades. You're ambitious, but unless being a doctor is literally, you can't see yourself being anything else. And that's all you want to do in your life. It's your calling. Then hell yeah, go for it. But if you do go for it, you got to make sure you're learning about all the other things that come with being a doctor, including how to run your own business, how to know all the laws, be up to date with what's happening in the, in the world around you. Like 
you can't just be laser focused on only learning medicine. You have to leave some space to learn everything else business-wise, money-wise, because that's going to affect your career too. So I, I'm very conscious. Like I talk to my brother all the time about this. Yeah. I mean, we, we want our best and brightest in medicine. I mean, I'm on the, the patient side of this, right? I mean, I want, <laughs> I want the best people to take care of me when I need it. Uh, and so if that's going to slowly shift over time where we're creating a system where people don't even want to go into medicine mm-hmm. and, and the ones that did go into it are burning out and leaving or retiring 10 years before they should, yeah. that's a problem. And I, I certainly hope there is this reckoning that happens. Yeah. Well, the best and brightest, actually, like those are the ones that are just laser focused in medicine and like laser focused in the books. And they're the smartest people I know, the best doctors I know, but I've watched numbers of them just fall off like fleet because they just get so burned out because, you know, they're the easiest to take advantage of. They haven't, you know, devoted any other time to anything other than their craft, which is what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to be excellent amazing doctors. And unfortunately, they are the most vulnerable and get taken advantage of the most. Yeah. No, I, I don't disagree with that at all. You know, again, that's, that's one of the things that we hope happens. And that's the reason that we exist just in general is to try to force those eyes to open up and to say, hey, just <laughs> you can still do this if you want to, right? But you have to at least understand that you're being underpaid or that this non-compete stinks or that the tail coverage is not in line with everybody else. We view that as job number one. And then job number two is hopefully helping you change that if you really want to. Right. So what's the protocol when you go through a contract review process? Like, what does that look like? Like, let's say I'm ready to sign up. Let's say I got three offers Mm -hmm. and they're all really great offers, but there's one that stands out to me more than the others. And I really, really want this position. And so I'm maybe willing to... I'm maybe willing to take less pay or negotiate on that one offer more than others. What should a doctor know when they're going into a position like that? Because I've seen this a lot where, you know, you've got a few offers, but there's one that really stands out. There's one you really like. So you're showing your cards. So you're showing your cards, you're letting them know you really want this one really, really bad. And that is actually not helping you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> what are you doing that in that? Well, I, I would try to tell you that before you show every single card that you just you have it looked at, or you have somebody take a look at it and compare it with the other ones that you think are maybe options B and C, because that leverage piece is so important. And if they know, right? If you've told them, "Hey, I'm taking this job," right, and you're talking to realtors and you're buying houses and all that stuff, I mean, it's you've effectively said, "I don't care what's in the contract anymore. I'm just going to sign it anyway." Yep. So we always take the position with with any you know of our clients is what's most important to you. Because if the compensation is not the most important, if geography is most important or your call schedule is most important or whatever it is, right? Maybe you have a side gig podcast, right? That you (laughs) need to keep working on. I mean, everything has to be unique to your situation because if I came in and said, hey, this is a terrible contract, but it's really a point that you don't care about, well, then I haven't done my job very well. And I might dissuade you from a position that you would be in for 20 or 25 years. So that, that's my philosophy and my goal on it is to say, here's every single possible problem that could be there. And now you, if you're my patient, right, turn around and tell me what's important to you and what you want out of this so we can go through and customize it and not have them pull the offer, or have them lose the offer for you and actually get those things done. How often does that happen where you make these recommendations, make these changes to a contract, present it to the employer, and they say, we're not going to do that. Sorry. 
Like the, how often does that happen? Yeah, it happens. I mean, I don't know, 10% maybe it's hard to quantify, but it's pretty low. Yeah, it's pretty low. I mean, the, the most common response is we can do this, that, or the other, right. But we can't do all of it. And so then at that point you have to decide, are those things deal breakers for you? Or are you still, like you said, it's the one you really have to have. And I'm willing to, to go forward on it, even though I know that those things aren't perfect. That's the most common response that you're never going to have everybody say yes to everything. And they also mm-hmm. don't say no to everything. Is the line of communication directly with you when this is happening or is it with, or like with Resolve or is it with the, the physician? It, it depends. We let clients dictate that uh, as well. So we often have people that have had four or five conversations, right? They've already negotiated half the terms, right? Mm-hmm. Throughout an LOI stage or something else. We would encourage you to continue, you know, in those situations to be the voice of it, to not convolute it with multiple voices. Certainly make sure you know what's going on and get it reviewed, but you may want to still be the voice of that negotiation. In other situations, I think it's absolutely imperative that you step out of it. So you're not having to burn bridges. So you're not, you know, saying things that might, take leverage away from you. If it's not something you're comfortable with, we absolutely feel good about being that voice for you. Right, right. Yeah. Cause there I can imagine some situations where it get uncomfortable to be the person negotiating because you don't want to come off like, and especially doctors, we don't want to come off that way. Like, but I think it's important to have someone who is gonna, you know, be aggressive and uh, fight for us because, you know, that's what we need. We're supposed to be the, the healers of society and, and lawyers are supposed to be the, the I don't know, I got to, what's the appropriate word here? I, I always tell clients, you can always blame me, right? I mean, that's that's my role, <laughs> this bad guy uh, sometimes. And really just to try to bring as much logic to the situation as possible, especially when we're talking about numbers. So we'll often see or hear, right, that, oh, we have to pay everybody the same. Right. We, we can't have any pay discrepancy between, you know, our cardiologists. Well, the problem is, is that if we've done a contract for a cardiologist in that same institution, we know that that's not true. Yeah. It's much easier for me to come in and say that, you know, hey, administrator, why don't you take a look at this person's contract that's different? That's very effective and very powerful versus just, you know, you one off. You have no idea yeah. what your colleagues are. Yeah. I mean, that's probably why we have gender gap pays and all these things as well. I mean, they might say everybody's getting paid the same, but you don't know that. Yeah, we <laughs> mentioned that. And I've talked to you know some of the physician mom groups and things like that on this in the past, but we've had contracts side by side from a male and a female at the exact same time where one's getting a $25,000 signing bonus and the female's not. And again, it's why is that happening? I have no idea other than, right, they're different genders and they can get away with it probably. That's so interesting. Where can we send people? Like, let's say people want to start coming and getting there. And maybe is, is there other services? Let's say you've already signed a contract, but you got like, a, you know, you got to renegotiate or you want to add something to your contract in the future. What's the steps to take here? I mean, if you're interested in using our service, it's all resolve.com. We're very transparent as far as what we provide. And uh, we do encourage everybody to make sure you're paying attention to fair market value all the time. I mean, if the data changes by five or 10%, you know, year over year for you, that's certainly an increase you should be wanting to raise your hand and ask for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we work with people as they're coming in on a contract. We work with people that are wanting to leave, understand what their non-compete says, understand how they can terminate the contract, and then also just people that want to renegotiate, right? Those are certainly all situations where we feel like the data and the expertise is helpful. Okay. In the renegotiation process, let's say you've signed something, 
you want to ask for better terms. How do you help doctors in, in that sense? Those are fun because you actually have real production data to look at. It's not just mm-hmm. this guess at what, you know, how many patients you may end up seeing. So those are enjoyable for me because we can go in and say, okay, hey, if you produced at the 70th percentile for volumes and encounters, how come you're only earning the 45th percentile? And you can really drive some, some major change in those situations when you have your own data to be empowered by. So anything and everything, right? I mean, it's always up for negotiation in my mind, but certainly your comp on a renegotiation is really important. Awesome. And then one last thing I'd like to add, just in terms of relevance of where we're at in the economy, like... We've all been hearing about inflation, and I'm not sure how that's exactly played into the salaries of physicians, um, and if that's something that we should be accounting for as well. Yeah, so we, we can show trend lines as far as what you know, the specialty's done over the last few years. And so cost of living is certainly an issue with inflation, but the bigger you know, issue is how reimbursements change and the fee schedules that come out every year. And so you'll certain specialties did see, you know, almost mandated amendments from their employers because the fee schedule changed so dramatically that they were going to end up what in their mind overpaying. And so you can you can be sure that if it went the other way, the fee schedule changed to their benefit, there's no amendment being presented, right? I mean, that's yeah. your job to then raise your hand and then have to ask for that. So yeah, absolutely. I think cost of living is important, but more important is that fee schedule change every year and what the data says. Awesome. Kyle, where can we send everybody? I think you guys, I love the, you know, sort of like the depth of knowledge you have about all these issues and that you're really out there to help doctors. And, you know, we've been in connection for a while and and I've talked with your people at Resolve for a few years now, actually. And I want doctors to become empowered. Like this is something I'm really like passionate about. Like, I just want to see our community get the leverage back that we should have. I want to see doctors empowered. I want to see people, you know, getting to negotiate their contracts in a way that helps their families, that helps them feel better mentally, physically, like too many doctors are just getting run over and I'm just about sick of it. And I think most doctors are sick of it. And I want as many people as possible connecting with you guys, using your services, whether you think you need a contract review or not, it's at least worth a look, you know, and so I really want to encourage everybody to just head to your website and if we can, you know, send people somewhere specifically, that'd be great. Yeah, we will. We'll get you a specific link, you know, for your, your listeners to take a look at. And, and, you know, we're certainly working on making all of this as transparent, as easy as possible. We'll have some changes coming up to even our own website here in the next year. So you and I are on the same page on this one. We feel like this is our niche and our way to help uh, in this area for physicians. And um, we certainly hope people utilize it. Absolutely, Kyle, and such a such pleasure having you on the show. You're welcome back anytime. And I'm guys, you got everybody listening. If there's any questions you have for myself, or maybe for even Kyle, we can maybe do a follow up video, Kyle, if you're open to that. I'd love to get all of our physician community members really educated on this and involved with results. So, guys, let us know what questions you have. Thanks. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into the podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Kyle. To find out more about Resolve, head to resolve.com. You can find the link in the show notes below. We also have a discount code for you for 10% off any of their services. Use the code BM10 for 10% off. You can find that link in the show notes below. Once again, thanks for joining us, guys. Please share this episode, post it on your stories on social media, tag us at Beyond 
underscore med on Instagram or find us on LinkedIn at Beyond Medicine. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week.